0: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next 6 months. Just go to canadaland.com/join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.
1: From Canadaland, this is Oppo. <coughs>
2: I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and I'm opposed to Justin Ling.
1: I'm Justin Ling in the wintry hellscape of Toronto, and I'm opposed to Jen Gerson.
2: This week, the Trudeau government is yet again posturing...
1: Jason Kenny mansplains what women want.
2: And I brate a former liberal advisor whose scathing new book tells us that Justin Trudeau is still just not ready. FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software for small business owners like us. It saves you time and gets you paid faster. Now used by more than 10 million people worldwide. For your 30-day free trial, go to FreshBooks.com Oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section.
1: Sonos is offering the listener of Oppo 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions, so don't even try. Use the promo code OPPO10, capital OPPO10, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. When Justin Trudeau's liberals swept into power in 2015, there was lots of promise of doing things different. Open, accountable, the whole shebang. A big part of that promise was a commitment to one of the most abused slogans in politics open by default.
2: Wait, that's that's like a cliche because I don't think I've ever heard that before.
1: <laughs> well, it is. It sounds you're... like it
2: sounds like a really bad sort of dodgy Toronto bar. That's <laughs> what that sounds like. I go
1: to that. I would drink it open by default. It is a slogan that means letting data be free, posting stuff to the internet immediately rather than forcing people to beg and plead and file access to information requests to get a hold of it. That promise has thus far been a complete and total lie. Wee! I was waiting for your your shocked gasp. Whether you're talking about access to information or proactive disclosures, things have gotten worse under this government. A new report from the Open Government Partnership gives us a bit of a look into the problem. On the surface, it looks pretty good. The audit says that of the 22 commitments made by the Liberals on open information and open data, they've made significant progress on 19. It sounds really good. Right, Jen?
2: Uh, yeah, it sounds fantastic. Well, it's not. Let me hear let the catch. Let me hear the catch. <laughs>
1: The reality is that of those 22 commitments, only one of them was marked transformative or really just significant at all. Most of these promises, the Open Government Partnership says, are just low-hanging fruit. They're little stuff that should have been done 10 years ago. We are way behind when it comes to open information and open data, and this report lays it out pretty clearly.
2: Okay, so um, I'm not a real journalist. I'm just a pundit who spews out hot takes, (laughs) Justin, so you're going to have to break this down a little bit for me what exactly is the situation for someone who's trying to get access to information? What specifically could we be doing to make that easier?
1: Right. So uh, the last government and this government as well did this whole tap dance about modernizing the Canadian government. And they set up a thing called Open Canada. It's the open.canada.gc.ca or, or whatever. And what this was supposed to be was a clearinghouse for information. So rather than forcing people to beg and plead with governments to get stuff that really should be accessible anyway, they were going to post everything automatically. This would go everything from, you know, already released uh, access to information requests to environmental data, to roadways, to government contracts, you name it. The idea was to just put everything on this hub and let people sift through it if they want.
2: Well, and that seems like it should be a relatively easy thing to do nowadays because, I mean, everything should just be automatically are uploaded to a cloud accounting, whatever, and put in a database. I mean, that should just be like, there doesn't need to be a human set of hands or eyeballs on any of that, should there? Yeah, you'd
1: think so and yet somehow this government has completely failed to actually make this into something useful. The previous government did this really shady thing that made me so angry. When Tony Clement was president of the Treasury Board, he started this open data catalog thing and started bragging very quickly, saying, oh, we have tens of thousands of data files on there for the public. Our government believes in openness and transparency. If you actually went on and looked at what data was actually on there, it was mostly just environmental data and geographic GPS coordinates and whatnot. The vast, vast majority of it was stuff that was already available on government websites elsewhere and it had been for a while. They basically weren't putting anything new onto this hub at all. They were just dumping massive data sets and claiming that they were doing actual open government. They weren't. So- this government hasn't done anything terribly different. They redesigned the site to make it less useful, thanks, and have basically just been uploading the same crap that we don't even need for the past couple of months.
2: I sometimes wonder whether or not there is a special web agency for governments to go to to make their websites worse, because it does seem to me like it does seem to me like every time a government agency or a crown corporation, including the CBC, I love you guys, but no, it's terrible. Um, you know, they they want to upgrade their website. They're going to like the same people who have a mandate. To make the website less usable or functional for everybody involved, and I kind of, I'm kind of think that there might be a, an access to information request on that alone. <laughs>
1: That's actually a pretty good idea. I mean, the reality is one of the big problems that government either decides to go with the same big companies, IBM, a couple of others, to do all of their procurement for you know digital stuff, and then give them this laundry list of crap that they want, and IBM goes, oh yeah, sure. And then 10 years later, it's three times the budget and IBM delivers something that's not even remotely what they asked for. And government says thanks and pays them a premium. A lot of this so like, sm- the system, like, the exactly, exactly like the payroll system, the Phoenix payroll system, exactly the payroll system. The reality is like a lot of smaller outfits could do the job, but you can't give them a list of a thousand things that you want on your perfect government website because that's not how technology works. You can't build something from scratch on a budget and then have it, you know, basically drive your car and, and feed your dog, too. Anyway. Just, I,
2: it sort of puzzles me why the government of Canada just can't go to, like, Wix.com. Just get a little... Or, get Fresh a, Books. or FreshBooks.
1: <laughs> let just... FreshBooks run the CRA. <laughs> let,
2: let, let FreshBooks <laughs> handle your payroll system. They have easy-to-use <laughs> a cloud accounting software that they can set up in 30 seconds. Every single federal employee will get paid. I'm that, getting an email. FreshBooks has free. dropped
1: it to the sponsor. Uh <laughs> <laughs> This is not even live. How did that happen? Anyway, this open government report is super fascinating to me because you can tell they're going to great lengths to try to be complimentary to the government. Obviously, Canada doesn't need to be part of this partnership, and I'm sure if, if this partnership started publishing insanely critical things of the Canadian government, Canada would probably just pull out. But... You know there's there's stuff in here that is just so infuriating. Like it's really basic stuff that they still haven't finished. I mean like, like what? Like publishing StatCan data. Have you been on StatCan recently?
2: It's impossible. Oh my I god. I mean, you know, step 1 in all. open
1: data should just be basic statistical information that the government has and is somehow incompetent at publishing.
2: It literally is just tables of basic information, census data. That's all we're asking for here. The conceit of our show is that I'm supposed to play devil's advocate to you, Justin. So like,
1: yeah, let's do it. And here's
2: where I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm an average person. I'm not a journalist who gets off or gets paid on trying to uncover new shit. Just pretend, <laughs> who pretend, gets just,
1: off? <laughs> what
2: are you suggesting, exactly? Jen? <laughs> you're just really into open government. I'm just going to take that I, note. You're yeah. really into, like, you're really passionate. <laughs> but, I mean, if I'm the average person, why the fuck should I care about any of this?
1: Sure. I mean, the public doesn't give a shit about most stuff that happens in the Canadian government. I mean, you know, by this logic, the prime minister should ignore journalists, which you know the last one did, and you know cut all foreign aid. I mean, just because the public doesn't give a shit about it doesn't mean the government shouldn't be doing but the it. The
2: public would cheer both of those options. Let's be perfect. <laughs> exactly, and the,
1: that's but... the problem
2: <laughs> for us. To... So, in other words, fuck the public. This is important. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're saying. I mean,
1: that is actually on my business card. That is my, uh, that's my tagline. Uh, fuck uh, the public, this is important. Um, and that's your
2: leftover from your vice business card, I'm
1: sure. <laughs> of it. Vice had really nice business cards, actually. You know, it, it's infuriating because access to this data and this information can help us cover governments much more effectively. I mean, you know, this data is almost crucial, central to the work of journalists covering the federal government. You know, we need to have a window into how government operates. And if we don't have that, we can't really do our jobs properly. If the government is so in incompetent that it can't get basic information onto stats can and make it searchable and usable then you know that is a hundred percent fucking with our jobs and again just i want to keep picking on stats can most of those tables Actually, you know, were useful. There, there's data sets in there that are incredibly insightful into how cities operate, how governments operate, where public money goes. But a lot of them are discontinued from 1995, and it's unbelievable to me that we have the, in 1992 they had better access to some of this data than we have now. That's infuriating. You know, you want to talk about progress? We're going backwards.
2: Okay, so I'm going to make this case better for you, man, and that is to stop making it about journalists and just say here, there's two points we need to make here. One. The government is using our money to collect and use this data. It is actually not their right to withhold the information about us that they collect on our behalf, on our dime. Like, it's actually our data. It's not the government's data. It's Canadians' data. And secondly, I would say, is like, fuck journalists, we don't matter. But, I mean, I would also say... Academics, That's the other side other, of my business card. No, I. <laughs> man, Vice does sound like it has nice business cards. That's amazing. Um, but then the other thing I would say is, it's academics, it's policymakers, it's other levels of government who are using this data on your behalf to try and create better cities and more workable policies for you. So you know, it isn't a journalist issue. I actually genuinely think it's it's a public interest issue, and that yes, you're right, the public should give a shit
1: about it absolutely and I mean you want to talk about it's not just the federal government I mean the federal government is particularly culpable a lot of the provinces are awful at this as well British Columbia being the odd exception Um, it's it's impossible to find court records in this fucking country in an unbelievable way oh my god
2: which is insane
1: it's Court records are
2: public information. They're not private.
1: Yeah. The entire U.S. court system is on a single database that is searchable and usable relatively effectively. It looks like it was built in 1975, but that's fine. The
2: U.S. is a decentralized hot mess. How in the fuck does the U.S. have this and we don't?
1: Same with corporate records. In Canada, we have a thing called Cedar. And if you ever had to use Cedar, you know exactly how infuriating it is. And the image, that the loading page that looks like it's from 1997, is emblazoned on your brain for the rest of your life. Cedar, you talk-
2: I have to physically go down to a registry's office to do a corporate registry search in Alberta It's and pay a fee for them to look something up on a computer screen for me. It's insane.
1: The parliamentary budget officer wrote a report about Canada's infrastructure spending just a couple of weeks ago and basically said that it couldn't find basic information for billions and Billions of dollars of infrastructure projects. This is insane. This infuriates me because this needs to be an issue that some politician gives a shit about, and nobody does. And I like pulling out my hair. I've been doing this for years now, just complaining and whining and screaming about access information, open data, uh, you know, just basic government transparency, and no one seems to give a shit. And it's it makes me sad, Jen. It makes me sad.
2: You just basically admitted your end game here, Justin. Justin Lang is going to run for politics. Uh,
1: why? I he don't has want to to. Be
2: because he, he has to be the one who cares. <laughs> <laughs> You're doomed. So, the great news is that spring has almost arrived, except it absolutely hasn't. <laughs> The not-so-great news, in addition to the not-great news before, is that tax (laughs) season is arriving along with it. If you're a freelancer and you're stressed out by stacks of receipts, spreadsheet formatting, nightmares, and not enough time to deal with it all, then listen up. A, it's too late. You're doomed. But if you don't want to be doomed against next year, you need to get FreshBooks. They've created ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software that makes dealing with your taxes way less taxing. Their mobile app lets you take pictures of your receipts and organizes them for later, which makes claiming expenses at tax time a breeze. Learn your lesson this year, folks. Don't let this ever happen to you again. Are my taxes due? You can set up FreshBooks (laughs) to import expenses directly from your bank accounts. So next time you use your debit card for that meal, tank of gas, or new computer for your business, Boom! The purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks. Hell, I did not know that. I'm signing up for that. That's amazing. On top of all the things FreshBooks can do for you at tax time, it's also really simple to create and send invoices. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial to OPPO listeners. Just go to freshbooks.com forward slash OPPO and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About a Section. Justin. Jen. Jason Kenny wants to tell me all about what the biggest women's issues are.
1: I'll tell you what I think the most important women's issue is in Alberta. Our economy. I don't care, care whether you're, you're a woman or a man, whether you're uh, straight or gay, whether you're an immigrant or you're a sixth generation Albertan. If you're out of
0: work, I want to get you a job. If you're a, uh, a small businesswoman who's put your life savings into a business, uh,
1: I don't care about your gender. I want to make that business, ensure that that business dream is successful. So I think the most important issue for Alberta women is getting our economy back on track and not mortgaging the future of children. I I love this so much, Jen.
2: Okay, let's start with you. Tell me why you love this.
1: Well, listen, I don't care if you're gay or straight or into furries or if you're a voyeur or if you're six foot tall or if you're two feet tall. This video is just incredible. It's just Jason Kenny trying so hard to push back on Notley's, you know, whole thing for liking gay people and failing so miserably. Like, this is the most offensive thing to happen to women since the movie What Women Want starring Mel Gibson.
2: Okay, so I think that I'm going to kind of defend this video sort of just a little bit because I feel someone should uh, in principle. <laughs> Should they? Firstly, here's what I would say is that I do think that depending on the constituency you're a part of, you're going to hear very different things based on this video. If you're sort of a left-leaning woman, the first thing you're going to hear is, Jesus fucking Christ, who is this asshole to mansplain me what a woman's issue is? Fuck this dude. And if you're a right-leaning woman, you're going to be like, Spot on. My interests aren't necessarily different from the men around me. I, too, care about the economy. We're all in this together. And I and to me, what is also so interesting is that it's such a blatant attempt to defuse identity politics and, and to try and say, like, look, I'm not here to divide and conquer this society. I'm here to represent the interests of a unified society. And I think that if you're a right leaning woman, there's a part of that message that is actually going to appeal to you. The problem that I have with this ad is that it really sounds like the type of messaging that a group of very right-leaning people in an office who don't speak to people who aren't like them would come up with. <laughs> yeah, that, that's
1: exactly it. I mean, yeah. you know, this is what always I always find infuriating about you know the crowd who who lists identity politics on their dislikes section of their Plenty of Fish profiles, and it's that you know just because you're appealing to the issues that are specifically affecting a group of people doesn't mean that those people only care about those issues or that you're paying attention to those issues to the detriment of all others. You can go and advance, uh, you know, the issues of gay teenagers in schools without that having fucking anything to do with the economy. That's why we have multiple ministers. There's a minister of education and there's a minister of finance. They don't do the same job. It's not just one person running everything. But
2: where's the minister for the status of men, Justin?
1: (laughs) Uh I I heard he just signed up to participate in the straight pride parade this year. All this to say is that you know, i have a real problem with the way Jason Kenny is, is running right now, Alberta. And you know, Jason's a guy from my time in Ottawa who I actually quite liked. I had a lot of time for Jason Kenny. You know, he was always very approachable and very kind of intelligent on most issues. It made an active effort not to inflame issues, but to advance them. And I know I'm gonna get hate tweets from that from a thousand different leftists, but I actually had a lot of time for Jason Kenny. Now, Jason Kenney in Alberta seems to have just kind of crib noted uh, the worst type of politics in this country and made it so much worse. It is a campaign that, that seems to exist just to speak to angry white men who really hate Rachel Notley and not to the broad middle of Alberta. Who actually, you know, are nominally conservative and who will probably leave Rachel Notley anyway? I don't get what he's doing. He's poisoning the well in such a way that makes me very angry. I mean, you don't need to pick the GSA issue. Like, you can leave the gay teenagers alone.
2: Let's uh, let's not forget the women who hate Rachel Notley here. That's sure, sure, lots of women Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I I find I've been Alberta politics been covering Alberta politics for a number of years, and to be honest with you, I think that if you're going to cover politics in this country, get the fuck out of federal politics. Go cover provincial politics because that is where the most interesting stuff happens i mean it's where the most interesting personalities just just. okay but interesting interesting worse you know not necessarily two different things um so i i mean the, the gsa stuff is interesting to me because it wasn't just kenny choosing to go after gay teenagers let's also make the point that essentially rachel notley and her ndp government very brilliantly created a trap Jason Kenny and he went and stumbled right on into it. So, I mean, one of the things and one of the but like criticisms-
1: knowingly, like he saw oh, the oh, trap absolutely. and then walked into it an anyway, yeah, exactly. smiling and like,
2: like like a roadrunner, like, uh, <laughs> like, like a roadrunner like road with the anvil <laughs> hovering over the, the highway. So, and then it was like, ha ha ha, you're going to go right into the beep beep beep, you know, boom. Um,
1: and this has been Jen half describing old cartoons. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for joining us.
2: <laughs> there you go. Um, so I one of the things that gets constantly said around Alberta is that there's a general sense that Jason Kenney's a shoe-in, Rachel Notley's toast in a year. And this conservative province is going to flock to the UCP banner and they're going to go they're going to go to the right anyway. So really just just Rachel Notley's buying time. And I mean there's some polling numbers that are going to come out that are going to generally support that idea, but that doesn't mean there's no path to victory for Rachel Notley here, and one of the paths to victory in this province is to present conservative-leaning leaders as being socially regressive, like right. I would say. So if you were to look at, for example, go back to 2012, why did Danielle Smith and the Wild Rose Party, you know, they, they were ahead of the polls till almost the last weekend of the election, and then they lose it. Well, it, that's largely attributed to the fact that there were three, what we would call now bozo eruptions. And I'm not going to get into them in depth, but they were examples of the Wild Rose team and Danielle Smith herself making comments that were then presented as being backward, extreme right, you know, way too far afield, and as a result the electorate doubled down back on the PC government that they largely hated and loathed at that point, because they were just like, look, we can't elect these far-right whack jobs. And And then Jason
1: Kenney looks at that and is like, hold my milk. Yeah, exactly. And
2: And this is the fundamental risk. So one of the big questions here is the degree to which the Notley government is going to take a play out of that 2012 playbook and just be like, look, this guy is, you know, hardcore against abortion rights, he's hardcore against gay rights, he's blah 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 blah. And essentially what they're doing with things like Gay-Straight Alliance bills and this most recent bill about um, creating a distance at abortion clinics for protesters, which is really interesting to me because I'm actually not aware of a whole lot of protesting happening in abortion clinics in Calgary and Edmonton anyway, but they're creating this bill... In the hopes that Jason Kenney reveals his socially conservative policies and that they can then run against those policies in the next election and through that create a path to victory for themselves. So it's a really fascinating dynamic, but and it plays against a lot of the uh, long standing stereotypes that people, particularly in Ontario, have about Alberta, about Alberta being this hardcore or hard right socially regressive place. Because I mean, if you actually look at the polling numbers, Alberta doesn't poll more socially conservative than most of Ontario. So yeah. it's within two or three points on most issues and also i mean oh my gosh this is kind of a sideline but there's this long-standing history of people like conservatives in ontario Coming to Alberta, donning a cowboy hat and some cowboy boots, and then being more conservative than thou, and being more Albertan yeah. than thou, right? And to some extent, like I look at Jason Kenney sometimes with his pickup truck, and uh, it feels like that. It feels like that. It feels like a come from away, you know, transplant from Ottawa who's going to come back and like be 1994 stereotypical Albertan. And whether or not he can win, I'm really, really fascinated. I mean, he he certainly can win, but whether or not he does win? I'm so interested to see whether or not that actually works this time around in 2018 because the Alberta of 2018 is a very different place demographically and socially and politically than it was in like 1994.
1: You know, I think part of the narrative and the thing I, I hear repeated back to me a lot is that Kenny, you know, went so far to the right to make sure that while Rose kind of properly got consumed into this UCP, which again, an acronym you need to change.
2: It's too late. And, and, it, and late. It was,
1: he, too he was playing it. to the right to sort of you know placate Brian Jean supporters, but a there doesn't seem to be any serious discussion about re-splitting the party. The party seems pretty happy together. Yeah, the party's uh, pretty
2: unified, as far as I can tell.
1: And it felt like he was actually running to the right of Brian Jean during the leadership he and was. has sort of stayed there. And was. And it's mystifying to me, especially Jason Kenney, you know, lieutenant of the Stephen Harper years. Stephen Harper unified the party by specifically ignoring social issues and running as a fiscal conservative who is good with the public's money.
2: But that is what Kenney's trying to do here and Notley's not letting him do it.
1: Well, I don't know. It seems to me that... That Jason Kenny keeps looking at these social issues and looking at issues um, you know around identity politics and you know the gay straight alliances and and whatnot and then it's purposefully addressing them like you pivot away man
2: i mean i think man i think he, he just walked into a trap for the, on the gay straight alliances and didn't know how to walk his like he had to like chew off his leg to get out of that one but i mean this particular one is this ad to me is highly indicative of him attempting to do exactly that i'm going to divorce myself from this sort of divisive identity politics stuff and i'm going to focus on the thing that where i know that i'm strong at and that's the economy this is all about the economy there are no women's issues there are no men's issues there are no immigrant issues there is the economy we're all in this together we're unified. Albertan and we're all going to focus on uh, getting this province back on track. Like, that's the message he's trying to sell.
1: Maybe. I I have not seen that message come out clearly from Jason Kenney thus far. It really has felt like a bit of a mess. And it felt like he really is trying to play up his right-wing bona fides uh, in a way that does not feel real to me. It feels very fake.
2: Well, the other thing that I would also point out is one of the problems that Jason Kenney has is that Notley, for the last couple of months on Pipeline Politics, has just been killing it.
1: Oh, 100%. She's
2: just destroyed the United Conservative Party and by basically stealing all of their positions and running like harder than hard on you know I'm an Albertan girl and I'm going to defend Albertans interests and like let's go to town kind of thing and Kenny has just been left in the background going like well yeah just what she said you know like he's got nothing it's the, like his strongest line in the last couple of weeks is she's copying me and it's, it's weak right yeah
1: yeah and, and again you know I think Jason Kenny's- a hypothetical Jason Kenney government is going to sort of be bound by the campaign he's running right now. And it's just it is sort of mystifying to me that he's deciding to set himself up in his future government like on these terms. I mean, the carbon tax is another great example. He's tried to become one of the most vocally anti-carbon tax voices in the country. And like tough shit, man, like if you win government, you're stuck with it. I mean, unless you want to get into protracted litigation with the federal government. We talked about this before.
2: Exactly. You're stuck with it. The carbon tax thing drives me absolutely goddamn bonkers because when he gets in government, he's not going to be able to repeal it, and if he does, the federal government will just impose it on him anyway. And, and secondly, he knows
1: that, so why is he picking that fight?
2: Because he thinks he can win on it, and like the other, yeah. the other thing that drives me nuts, about he, can win, he, can,
1: he can win. He could win. He put on one of those. Spinny helicopter hats and you know, dress like a baby and he'd still win. Like you're you're going to be Rachel Notley. You're gonna be fine.
2: The carbon tax goes to like a real deep up place in Alberta because it's about taxing an industry that we feel has been beleaguered and unfairly maligned in the rest of Canada, and that therefore we kinda of have to to some extent, because it's it's so shat on in the rest of Canada, Alberta's positions on the oil sands and on our oil and gas industry has become extremely hard and it's actually become a pretty not totally universal, but you're gonna find left leaning Albertans, like actually genuinely progressive Albertans and right-leaning Albertans, to be generally on board on a lot of these oil and gas industries because of this, because the the rhetoric is so hardened on this. Okay, well, so
1: find a way to make it palatable. So, say I'm going to modify the carbon tax to make it. Revenue neutral and put money back in your yeah, pocket be the yeah, one okay, thing Albertans yeah. – and this is your position, I know. The one thing Albertans, I think, love even more than the oil sands is getting money back from the government. So, I mean, there you go. Go my preferred route and promise a cap-and-trade system that will actually help no, basically move money into stupid. some of the, in the emerging it's industries in the oil sands. It's
2: terrible. Either um, the, way – Here's the other way that I would say it is that the other problem with, with shitting on the carbon tax is that Notley's actually using that as a lever. And she's using that very effectively mm. as a lever by basically saying like, look, we're creating this like country leading um, system that will actually reduce carbon emissions. And if you guys aren't going to play with us, we're not going to play ball with you. And all of your climate yeah. change plans are just going to be scuttled because we're a top emitter. Like she's using that carbon tax as a lever in the negotiations with the rest of the country and the federal government. Now, a lot of people in Alberta are going to be like, yeah, well, pff, look at how well that's worked, lady. Like, yeah. you know, like we haven't gained the social license that we actually wanted. And this carbon tax has actually done nothing for us, uh, you know, and we can have that debate. But. You know, why would you willingly give up a potential lever is also the other kind of question. I I think it doesn't position Kenny particularly well to fight these pipeline battles and these resource battles with the rest of the country. If he just sort of cans that in order to placate the feelings of Albertans.
1: I don't care if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're a pipeline. (laughs) What matters is the economy. And now for a new segment on Oppo that we like to call the Thunder Round. It's like a lightning round, but it's different. On this segment, we're going to whip through some of the stories this week at a thunderous pace. Jen, kick us off.
2: Firstly, I'm going to reach into our letter bag and bring you some hate mail. Hate mail. From Bert S. Quote, if you are going to credibly present a right-left show in Canada, perhaps the person representing the right should have a basic knowledge of conservative politicians in Canada. The conservative MP for Lethbridge is Rachel Harder, not Peggy Harder. Bert S, you are exactly <laughs> correct. You are oh, Bert 100%. S, you're, you're our hero. No, he's right. I'm actually going to make a confession here. The reason why I went into uh, print journalism as opposed to broadcast journalism is because I'm terrible with names. I'm really, really bad. As we're about to find out in our coming interview segment, I mess up names all <laughs> the time and I have to go back into my print copy and like double check every single thing is right because like, I, I makes this screw up so please forgive me and bear with me when I screw up names in a podcast format it really is just because my brain sucks and I, I make this mistake quite often so S, you were correct
1: I would have corrected you but I assume all white women of a certain age are named Peggy oh,
2: that's fair enough I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving into my Peggy years myself so <laughs> I mean the country needs another right wing contrarian columnist named Peggy let's be honest <laughs> Um, so, so I apologize to Bert S. I apologize to our conservative listeners, whom I assume are Legion. And I, most importantly, I apologize to Rachel Harder.
1: The S in Bert S stands for Sarah. His name is Bert Sarah. Jen, did you see the journalist who attacked the Humboldt Broncos victims?
2: Oh, we're doing this, aren't we? That is
1: the subject line of the most recent rebel missive from Rebel Commander Ezra Levant himself. Now, Obviously, this issue is quite tragic, and unfortunately, we we as a country have decided to pick on a freelance writer and her dumb tweet, as opposed to just sort of not being idiots. But here we go. Rebels making it worse. Dear Justin, fake name that I gave the rebel, I've never seen anything like it. A left-wing journalist and political activist named Nora Loretto publicly attacked the 16 Humboldt Broncos victims in a tragic car accident. So this email goes on some typical rebel rants. She smeared them because they were white males and all this. Now, if you haven't seen her tweet, Nora Loretto sent out this dumb tweet that she rightfully got criticized for. But now we have this whole you know effort, this competition in the country to see who can dump on her loudest. And obviously, Ezra has come in as a clear front runner. It's it's mystifying to me that we feel the need to like collectively as a nation beat up people who say dumb things on the internet because honestly, there's a lot of fodder out there, and I think we might want to better use our time.
2: So, I'm just going to wrap up this lightning round by saying that I live in the prairies and I walk down my street, and there are hockey sticks on every other door. And there is a community here of people who will be forever grieving this particular tragedy. And I'm not being hyperbolic, I'm, I'm quite serious about yeah. that. That's a small town. And there are parents whose lives have been destroyed by this. Every single parent in this country who has to put their kid on a bus, which is all of us, by the way. I mean, my kid's only 18 months old, and now, like, my heart is in my chest thinking about the Idea of putting my kid on a bus for the first time. Like I, I, can't. I have not been able to read any single one of these stories to the end. I can't do yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I'm in the same camp. It, it's absolutely you know horrifying. And again, like, but you know what? No, no, no.
2: This... the point I'm trying to make here is that that's what this story should be about. Right. And this is not. A monkey
1: I want to feed. I 100% agree. And we need to, get to a point as a country where we can discuss you know, tragic or difficult issues without feeling the need to make it a process story about what dumb things got said, right? Like it is tragic. And you know, a lot of the time after things like this happen, you'll hear things like don't politicize the issue. Obviously, politicizing issues and politicizing tragedies such as mass shootings to advance better public policy goals is a very good thing. What we shouldn't be doing is just getting obsessed with what dumb, hot take came out of it. Like, it's bugging me. And at the end of this email, I'm laughing at the top of it. At the end of the email, he asks the unwashed masses of the rebel horde to put in the promo code broncos to get a $20 off the rebel subscription honestly you want to talk about why these issues get drawn out and sort of puffed up it's because of people like ezra who feel the need to whip up their angry basket of deplorables into getting pissed off at stuff like this and it's just not helpful and it makes the country a more difficult place to live in
2: as i said i don't think that any of the people on twitter are the story here and they shouldn't be Today, even as we are taping, Rachel Notley and John Horgan and Trudeau have allegedly had some kind of quasi-productive meeting to talk about pipelines. It's pipelines all the time, pipelines all the time, pipelines all the time. (laughs) All I write is pipelines all the time, pipelines all the time. Um, Look... If you want to read one more single fucking column about pipelines, believe me, I'm sure I'll be pumping out a few more this week to pay my daycare bills. I don't want to write about pipelines anymore. It's making me insane. (laughs) I don't want to do it. Please let it stop.
1: For as little as a dollar a day, you can help a journalist like Jen Gerson not have to write about pipelines anymore.
2: Set up my Patreon account. Uh, I'm going to (laughs) set that up. And like literally, if if I get past, say, like $1,000 a month... That covers almost all of my daycare bills, and I swear to you, I will not write about pipelines anymore. It'll be like a reverse Patreon. I will never write about this again. I think I can get the right on board on this. I can get the eco-warriors on board of this. Everybody <laughs> will get on board with this not serious okay. campaign. It
1: because it's the thunder round, I'm going to drop a really hot take, and then we're not going to discuss it. You ready? I got it. Reroute it through the Arctic. Boom.
2: You know, that's actually been proposed. I know. In fact, I'm all for pumping oil into the Arctic. I said we're not going to
1: discuss it, Jen.
2: No, no, I'm supporting you. I think it's a brilliant <laughs> idea. We should pump that dirty fucking oil sands oil right into the Arctic Ocean. I'm down. Totally Let's agree. do it.
1: Meet the latest addition to the Sonos home sound system, the Sonos One. Sonos One blends great sounds with Amazon's Alexa, the easy-to-use voice service for hands-free control of your music and more. Use your voice to play songs while you cook, tell Alexa to turn up the volume while you're in the shower. You can even request a lullaby out loud when you're talking in the kids. Isn't that nice, Jen?
2: It's so nice. I use it to play some Charlotte Diamond.
1: Sonos is offering the listeners an offer 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. The offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code OPPO10, capital OPPO10, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Despite some pretty lofty promises during the campaign, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's legacy on foreign policy has been a pretty big disappointment. That's the conclusion of a new book by our next guest, Jocelyn Coulomb. A selfie avec Justin Trudeau is the French-language accounting of the Prime Minister's first two years on foreign policy. It includes some pretty salacious details about how Stéphane Dion got the boot from cabinet, and some pretty pointed critiques about the Prime Minister's attitude towards Russia, Iran, the UN... You name it, basically, and Jocelyn Croulin has a problem with it. Jocelyn, how are you? Fine, and you? Good. Let's get started. Why did you write this book? Why did you decide to put this book out now?
3: Well, I write this book because I was a little bit disappointed about the way the Liberal Party was delivering his uh, foreign policy. Uh, You remember that in 2015, Trudeau and the Liberal Party promised to deliver a foreign policy that would be... Uh, different from what the conservative government has done for 10 years. Well, you know what? Uh, Almost nothing of this happened. We are falling back on the aid issue. The relations with uh, Russia are very bad. And uh, we are still looking for a, a real participation in peace operation, especially in Mali. And if you remember what happened in 2010... The record of Canada was so bad that for the first time since 1946, Canada was not elected as a non-permanent seat at the UN. There
2: are people who would dispute that point. They would say that there might be any host of issues as to why Canada might not have gotten that seat. You know, maybe it's because our reputation was so bad. But I mean, I think it's a pretty overtly partisan line to say that you know, the conservatives and Stephen Harper had so tarnished our reputation abroad that therefore we lost our seat. Right. I mean, that's that's a pretty convenient liberal line.
3: Well, what is specific to uh, the loss from the conservative is that the. Nor Africa, and when you look at the uh, political regrouping in the in the United Nations, 54 states are member of Africa. This is the biggest political bloc in the UN, and if you have 192 votes and you're losing almost all of the African votes, you're starting very badly to get a seat at the UN Security Council. This is why country... But aren't we
2: kind of begging the question here? I mean, why would we want that seat in the first place?
3: Well, we want that seat because this is a a very prestigious place to be and to try to influence what we call the, uh, the producing of international norms on peace and security.
2: Sorry, so how is the Security Council working with Russia exactly?
3: Well, Russia has voted several times on North Korea, on Iran, and on other peace and security issues. Therefore, what the media focus on, it's uh, when Russia is not working along with the Western nations. But we should look at the other side.
2: Or actually trying to undermine the democracies of the Western nations. That's also something that Russia does.
3: That's another question. I'm talking here about why Canada should sit at the Security Council. It's because of our foreign policy objective, but it's also to produce norms and principle that we are attached to since 1945.
1: And this is something I think is interesting about the book. You kind of look... At Russia, China, a handful of other actors who Canada you know promised to work better with when Trudeau was you know, running to be prime minister when he first took office and when you were working with both him and uh, his foreign affairs minister, Stéphane Dion. What, what do you think happened there that stopped Trudeau from reengaging with, with Russia and, and from some other countries that he was looking to kind of rebuild relations with?
3: I think the prime minister is not well aware of international affairs in general. And you must understand also that Kristia uh, Freeland has a lot of influence with the prime minister. And uh, Mrs. Freeland was... You mean this
2: is the Kristia Freeland, the same minister that Russia has gone around and spread disinformation about?
3: No, you're right. But uh, you have to come back to geopolitics here. Who are our neighbors? When you look at a map, you don't like Russia... We will never have a marvelous relationship with Russia, but we must have a relation with Russia because we, Canada and Russia, control 75% of the Arctic. And the Arctic will become more and more important in the future.
1: Yeah, th- well, this is interesting. You know, over the last couple of years, we actually have been dealing with Russia when it comes to the Arctic Council. It seems to be the only part of our relationship that still is at least somewhat functional. Yes. During your time in Stefan Dion's office, I mean, you know, was that happening? Was that engagement working?
3: Well, the engagement was uh, was working. But it was very limited. And what Stéphane Dion has in mind, it's try to engage uh, Russia through the Arctic. Dealing through the Arctic will be a way to open some channel of communications, like we have done in the past, uh, by the way then that was his, uh, his philosophy.
1: Right, but, you know, Stevan Dion's uh, point of view is also that we should re-engage with Russia on a variety of fronts, including potentially re- reducing or maybe eliminating sanctions that we had put on Russia after its incursion into Crimea and Donbass. Yes. So, you know, it's not just it's not just the Arctic. So, you know, what underpins that philosophy that we need to normalize relations across the board?
3: No, well, listen, I didn't say that we have to normalize relations with Russia all across the board. We have a difficult relation with Russia, but we have to think through a long-term period here. Putin will not be there forever. Therefore, we should maintain contact and relation with Russia. By the way, like Finland and Sweden and Norway are doing, they are part of uh, NATO or the European Union. They have adopted sanctions against Russia, but at the same time, they maintain the dialogue with this power because Russia is a power.
2: One of my my arguments here might be that denormalizing relations with Russia when Russia behaves badly is probably one of the most powerful tools that we have and the most powerful pieces of leverage that we have, considering the relative power of our nation. And you know, if we wouldn't denormalize relationships with Russia now after everything they've done, what would they have to do for us to start making those types of decisions and those moves?
3: Well, I think in a, in the diplomatic world, you always have to talk to adversary, okay? I just want to uh, to go back to history. In 1955, Lester B Pearson was the first Western foreign minister to go to Moscow to meet with the new leadership who has succeeded, Stalin. He knows that uh, the relationship will be difficult with uh, the Soviet Union at that time. But at least he was prepared to go to Moscow and to speak So why
2: wouldn't we wait until a leader that would come forward who is post-Putin to sort of reestablish those relationships? Why would we do this with a leader who's actively attempting to undermine democracies across the Western world and seems to be engaging in largely a destabilization effort that intends to reinvigorate his own power at the expense of the West and NATO.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, why should why we, would
2: we? Why would we reward that?
3: Why should we wait? I think we should engage. Well, because that, we have
2: every reason to wait. Well, that's we, can't, my, we can't assume that we're dealing with, with actors in good faith.
3: That's my philosophy. You have to engage.
2: Your book essentially s- suggests that the Liberal government went into office with a lot of um, optimistic, high-minded goals about yeah. re-establishing Canada's place in the world. And, you know, conservatives, and especially people in the West, kind of raised their eyebrows about a lot of the messaging here that went into it and had a lot of um, cynicism about some of those goals and some real questions about whether or not a lot of those goals were realistic or based in, in a grounded understanding of geopolitics as it was, not as we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know over time we've started to see that i think your your thesis is largely correct that the foreign policy that this government has adopted has largely been a continuation of the conservative policy yes is that a failure of the liberal government or is that simply just a reaction to the fact that the liberals have to react to geopolitics as it is, not it, as, as they would want it to be. I mean, everybody can be a critic when they're in opposition, but when you're actually in power and you're dealing with these things in a day-to-day way, you know, some, some hard truths start to assert themselves really quickly.
3: That's a very interesting observation. But uh, the Liberal government has uh, advertised not a break from the Conservative, but they will do things differently. Uh, look at peace operations. We have built a program that will have engaged uh, canada in peace operation in a substantial manner if i may say and we end up replacing six german helicopters for uh, six canadian helicopters in mali that was not the plan that we advertise to, uh, to Canadians, that we also advertise to the UN.
2: I'm really glad you brought up peace operations because this is one of my own bugbears for a really long time because I think Canadians have a very nostalgic and sentimental view about our participation in peacekeeping operations around the world. Yes. But you know, it hasn't been Canada alone that has cut back its contribution to UN peacekeeping operations. In fact, pretty much every Western nation, with the exception of France, has significantly cut back its participation in these programs for a number of reasons. One, because they're questionably effective. And two, because they've essentially become third world mercenary groups that do all the dirty work. And three, because the actual reputation of the Peace Corps has been severely sullied by a series of um, very damaging accusations. Fourthly, I think the other real question is, you know, peacekeeping can work in certain limited, types of circumstances, but this naive hope that we could just throw in a bunch of blue hats into a conflict zone, blue helmets, sorry, who don't necessarily have the weapons or training to deal with on the ground, high level combat just didn't really pan out. Turns out it didn't really work. I mean, we saw that in Rwanda, for example. uh, So, you know, this idea that we necessarily should be throwing all this cash into peacekeeping instead of just standard military operations is one that, again, I think we're begging the question here.
3: By Jen
1: Gerson's new foreign policy book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're supposed to be taking the lead on this one, Justin. I'm like, this ain't even my wheelhouse.
3: (laughs) I've been uh, been studying uh, peace operation for the last 30 years. And I think uh, it is working because, as usual, the media focus on the failure, not on the, the success of peace operation.
2: I kind of want to bring us back to the politics here in Canada a little bit here. It was commented on your book that the relationship between Stéphane Dion and Justin Trudeau was quite frosty, and I was hoping you could get into that in a little bit of depth. Could you explain why it was frosty and the sorts of things that you saw that were indicative of that fact?
3: Well, I think it started in 2007 when uh, Justin Trudeau tried to be a candidate in the riding of Outremont during a by-election where uh, well uh, Thomas Mulcair was the candidate and uh, Stéphane Dion told uh, Justin Trudeau uh, that he was not welcome in uh, Outremont because he already has his candidate and it was me who was the candidate in Outremont and therefore Justin Trudeau uh, went to Papineau which is a riding not too far from Outremont and even there uh, the local liberal association was not very enthusiastic uh, with uh, Justin Trudeau, but he managed to be the candidate and he win uh, during the general election of 2008. And I think it, the bad blood start between uh, Dion and uh, Trudeau. At that time.
1: And, and so, how did things work when obviously Trudeau you know, gets into government, becomes prime minister, and installs Dion as, as foreign affairs minister? In your book, you mentioned that they never really had a face to face meeting until Trudeau fired him, essentially.
3: Yes. That's, that's mysterious. I, I cannot explain what happened, but the fact is the minister was asking the office of uh, the prime minister to have a meeting with the prime minister to discuss foreign policy and in 14 months they never managed to meet then you have to ask yourself question why did the prime minister was not able to meet his own foreign affairs minister to discuss the substantive issue of foreign policy and if you have read this chapter You will notice that John Baird, who I interview, told me that he met Stephen Harper often, even calling him during the weekend to uh, discuss some foreign affairs uh, issue. Therefore, uh, I think it's up to the prime minister to answer why he never managed to discuss foreign policy with his minister.
1: Let me ask you this, and I I ask you this very earnestly. Do you think that if the Prime Minister had, you know, basically let Stéphane Dion stay in the job and actually let Stéphane Dion kind of reshape foreign policy as he saw fit and sort of implement his responsible conviction, you know, philosophy. Do you think that would have gone over with the public? I mean, a lot of the things that Stéphane Dion was promising, we're not tremendously popular with the general public, nor with our NATO allies, for that matter. I mean, I'm referring well, to uh, re-engaging with Iran, re-engaging with Russia, potentially significant increase in, well, in uh, foreign aid and, and peacekeeping. Do you think that those would have been marketable to the public?
3: Well, do you think the public care about foreign policy every day? I don't think so. They don't and...
1: until you screw it up, basically.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's that, Yes, you're, you're right about that. But uh, this is not uh, the day-to-day uh, preoccupation of the public. And on re-engaging with Iran or Russia or others, I mean, look at the way the European countries are doing. The president of Iran was welcome in France in a state visit. Uh, because but why do
2: we care what the European countries are doing at all? Well, because like, why, we are allies. Why would allies. We set our benchmarks?
3: Well, we are yeah, allies. But, but,
2: but just because they're our allies doesn't necessarily mean we have to copy their their particular foreign policy no. on any of these issues. No,
3: we don't need to copy it, but at least
2: so it's like it's like keep on you keep on referencing these other countries that like who cares what France is doing? France is operating in its own interests, and that's fine. Blessings upon their head. That doesn't that's, bind that's what us I'm... to any similar course of action.
3: That's why I'm saying we should uh, base our foreign policy on interests and re-engage with Russia because it's important for us. But
2: it's po- very possible that re-engaging with Russia isn't in our national interest. It is in our national interest. It is in our national interest. According to you, but that's your opinion. Yes, that's my but opinion. That's why I wrote a book be. about it. Well, that's fair enough, yes. I, and, I, and I have not written a book, so that's, that's, again, good for you. But the other thing that I would say is, you know, it's very possible, and here you're going to see me defending the, the current liberal government, my goodness. I mean, I've long said that the things that I like most about this liberal government are the promises they fail to meet. You know, it's very possible that the incremental approach that they've taken here, that the sorts of conservative party light approach that they've taken to foreign policy is a reflection of both the reality on the ground and the tolerance of the Canadian public for what we're actually willing to do. Like, I think that you're going to find that a Canadian public isn't actually so keen on engaging with a country like Iran, where we had, you know, citizens like Zara Kazemi killed in, in the Evan prison. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you're going to find that maybe not engaging with that country is a broadly popular move and very mm-hmm. understandably so. That's possible. With a significant portion of this country.
3: That's possible. <laughs>
2: well, fair enough. <laughs> uh,
3: uh, <laughs> Jane, I know your style, and I knew what I was about to, to
1: do. Well, the book's only available in French, so uh, for all the bilingual amongst us, go pick up a copy. Maybe someday we'll even have an English edition or an updated edition after the end of the Prime Minister's first mandate. But thank you so much, Mr. Colon, for joining us and uh, for interviewing Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much guys. Nice. Thank you again, Miss. Thank Arnold. you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye. So, Jen, should we talk about that?
2: <laughs> do I do we have some <laughs> issues to work through?
1: It's. It sounds like you do. I thought I was going to be the hard one on in that interview, and you, you, yeah, you really blew up.
2: Should I? I, I think I know. I, I think that uh, Coulomb will be happy to be on Apple again. I think he was thrilled. I think he was super excited to be here and uh, had a great time.
1: I think I can hear the brick going through our window right now. He 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 drove to Toronto to throw, throw that through <laughs> our window. We're on the third floor. This is
2: this is the problem when you get an Albertan and a Quebecer into like the same interview and always <laughs> so always I... fireworks. What really enlightened me um, after speaking with Mr. Coulomb is that, you know, the origin of a lot of liberal foreign policy, being out in the West, being largely surrounded by conservative, pragmatic kind of approaches to these sorts of things, I don't necessarily hear where a lot of these ideas come from. So when the liberals came out um, with their platform with some of these ideas, I was just like, what the fuck are you on about? Like, more peacekeeping? What? Like, I don't like, I didn't really understand where the genesis and the origin of a lot of that stuff was. So, you know, for me, it was really, I think that that book is really valuable. And I think that uh, speaking to him was really valuable. And I'm, I'm very appreciative that he came on and put up with my abuse
1: on that note I think we'll we'll come back to this in a future show but uh, there's going to be some interesting stories coming out over the next couple of weeks uh, about the Prime minister's continued efforts to make nice with some pretty bad folks abroad and that's my tease for you was oppo jen i'm glad you learned something
2: i learned about what women want
1: we want to know what you think email us at oppo at we're
2: just shy of 200 reviews on itunes oh my god really they're all good so please give us a review and tell your friends what they're missing subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can find us on twitter at oppocast.
1: the next episode of oppo will be out in two weeks Candoland's original deep dive politics show commons will be out next week
2: This episode was produced by David Crosby. Hi, David. From Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Music by Nathan Burley.
1: I have the last word this week, and that word is gin. For when you drink too much of it and then have to record a podcast the next day.
0: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes. Like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.